happy Saturday. It's February 11th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in New York. And I'm Michael Haney in Rome. We are two of your emissaries from the universe of airmail, and we are here to talk about sex, lies, and murder. Yeah, and coming off of last week's phenomenal episode with Jamie Kerchick talking about Army Hammer, we've got more intense reporting coming at you this week. It's going to be a great show, right? Yeah, so we have part three of Howard Bloom's incredible series about the Idaho murders. And we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about Tinder, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Yeah. And then we've also got Jensen Davis, one of our airmail editors, with some sly social reporting on the hot new CEO accessory that is on the shopping list of executives from Silicon Valley to Wall Street. And then finally, one of our favorite authors, Mark Bowden, who wrote the bestseller Black Hawk Down, is here to talk about Abraham Lincoln, whose birthday we celebrate on Sunday. So yeah, it's a great show. And as you said, Ashley, got Howard Bloom was always great with our reporting on the Idaho murders. So lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. But first, Michael, because I haven't spoken with you since I'm in New York this week. How's Rome? You're in more time zones than Tony Blinken, who I'm not going anywhere these days thanks to the balloons floating over the U.S. But I don't know how you do it all. But as I've said before in this podcast, you are the Wonder Woman. But Rome, for me, is great. I'm settling in here at the American Academy, managing to eat a lot of arancini and see a bit of Rome every afternoon. Now you're just teasing me. <laughs> Moi? Yes. Are you going to Dianzo? Just tell me where you're eating. We have dinner here and lunch here every day. The menu was created by Alice Waters some years ago who planted the garden. So, Oh, stop it. You're just bragging now. You're just bragging. <laughs> oh, shush. Not bragging at all. Not bragging at all. We love that you're there. We love that you are spreading the gospel of airmail and morning meeting to all the Romans. I think we've got to work on our Italian, but that's a story for another day. Okay, Rome is one of the most exciting cities in the world. Established fact. But it turns out that our attentions are all focused on Idaho right now. Somewhat unexpectedly, due to the sad and sordid tale of the murders that happened there very recently. And Howard Bloom is here to tell us all about it in the third part of his series for airmail. Howard Bloom is a contributor to airmail and he's the author of several books, including the Edgar Award winning American Lightning, Terror, Mystery, The Birth of Hollywood, and The Crime of the Century. He is currently working on a book about these Idaho murders for HarperCollins. Welcome, Howard Bloom. Okay. Part three, the Idaho murders, and we're here to talk about social media. Okay, so this is giving us a clue into what actually happened, right? So where did your reporting take you on this this week? I've spent a lot of time in Idaho and in Pennsylvania trying to put the various pieces together in this puzzle. And I've noticed in the course of my investigations and travels that there is one link that ties it all together, and that's social media. In many ways, this is a Generation Z murder case that's tied together by the influence of social media and it comes in at all parts of this story. All right, take us back to the beginning. How do we think social media played a role in the way that the students were communicating with Koberger? What do we know at this point? We do know that these students posted endlessly like all students do, like kids do all over the world. And that's their right. That You need to document your life. It's a form of connectivity, self-documentation. But at the same time, there's also the possibility, at this point, it's still speculation. As this case goes, we're into the realm of speculation that Koberger was following them, that he was on the outside looking in. And when a psychopath is on the outside looking in, that's a very situation. He can descend to a very dark place. He decides that he can't have this sort of 
life that's being presented on social media in front of him. And it's infuriating and that he wants to, in fact, have the last laugh. He wants to strike back. That is speculation. But I think we need to look at the role social media played in this case as sort of a catalyst. And as a parent of three children, you have to, I have to think about, is it dangerous to put your world out there for everyone to see? This is what I found so compelling about your story this week is, as you said, you're a father and these things that are brought with such innocence and the perfect world onto social media. And yet it's probably no different the way some sociopaths have acted in the past where they're watching from the shadows, but now they can watch from the shadows while they're sitting at home. And in this world of incels and other people, this can just, the fuel on the fire can just burn so much faster than, right? Very much so. I mean, one wants to be careful. This is not victim shaming. These kids, my kids, everyone has a right in an open society to put your life out there. And that's Part of the fun of the times that we're living in, this sort of celebration, exhibition, exuberance. But at the same time, I think one has to realize that it's dangerous. If someone's trying to cross the street and gets hit by a driver, a hit and run driver, it's not the victim's fault who's trying to cross the street. At the same time, it's prudent to wait till the light turns green. And I'm just saying in terms of social media, Maybe people should think twice about the dangers that they're putting themselves on. Maybe you have to put some governors on your use of social media. You've got a great phrase in here where you say that a joyful shout out can reverberate in some forlorn minds as a taunt and a proud image on Instagram or TikTok becomes another depiction of a forbidden fruit. And I think it's beautiful writing and it also is a powerful fact of, as you say, where we are right now. It sort of makes the hair on the back of your neck stick up a little bit. These are scary times. And at the same time, one has to walk a very careful, dangerous line. I don't want to imply in any way, shape or form that I'm blaming or shaming the victims for putting their lives out there. I'm just saying, as a parent, you really have to think twice about what you share in the world. Prudence has to take hold. It's not a a moral judgment. It's a pragmatic judgment in the times in which we live. So Howard, then let's just go to the a better side of social media and how it's intersected with the case. And that is, as you've noted in the past, how law enforcement up there has crowdsourced the case and questions for people on social media to help them solve it. And what role that has played in the capture of the suspect here. And then I think as well, the potential impact that's had on Judge Megan Marshall, who's going to be trying this case and even her decision to kind of clamp down a little bit on how much information is available. So I was wondering if you could walk us through those two points. As you said, the efficacy of social media in this case, it's been tremendous. The police very (laughs) surprisingly made a public appeal and said, everyone out there, help us. We might be stymied. We can't find all the pieces in this puzzle. Help us put this puzzle together. And that was effective. They were at one point overwhelmed by over 20,000 different pieces of evidence, calls, JPEGs, emails. But in that trove, they found one piece of information from a gas station attendant on the graveyard shift who was able to help put the pieces together that confirmed the white Hyundai Elantra that had been seen in the neighborhood of the murder house had also been in the streets and they were able to track that car down. That was one of the key footprints on the path to finding Brian Koberger. The other part 
of your question, though, now the judge in the case in Idaho is trying to say enough is enough. We've had too much outside speculation, too many people talking. She wants to put a gag order. She Originally, after Kohlberger's arrest, she limited it to the law enforcement officials, the prosecutors. Now she's extended it even more to the families involved and their lawyers. And this, I would suggest, is a dangerous system. In this vacuum, it leaves not facts, but just speculation. And the people who will rush in to fill this vacuum are the people who maybe don't have the best motives at heart. They're really trying to stir things up, spread rumors, point fingers at innocent people. And the internet, which is still a largely unpoliced place, will just fill with dangerous, often treacherous, often villainizing speculations. And that really doesn't help the story. It would be much better, I think, if reporters could get access to the people involved in the case. I mean, this is a story people want to know about and let the story be told and made open to responsible sources. I want to ask, you've got your finger on the pulse of this case and where it goes. So what are you watching next as we move along? What are some of the milestones coming up in the next week or two that you think are going to have an impact on the trial and what you're going to be watching for? I think we're going to learn in the weeks and months ahead just how much evidence the police have on Koberger. We're going to see a better sense of their case. Right now, as I've discussed and written about in the past, there are some doubts about their case, how strong it is. For example, the DNA that they have at this point, as has been announced, is only touch DNA, which is a, a very specious sort of evidence. And the courts have, have frowned upon it. But do they have blood DNA? Do they have more? We've been talking about social media. Police have confiscated all of Koberger's social media devices. Can they find that he's been actually tracking these people? There have been all sorts of rumors, but nothing's been substantiated. I think as the weeks go on, we're going to see more of the case against Koberger, and we'll learn if it's as strong as the police want to believe, or once again, Perhaps it's a very fragile house of cards that's been built up. Well, it's a really incredible story and it continues to unfold. No doubt you have your work cut out for you. When are you going back to Idaho, Howard? <laughs> I hope to go back to Idaho within the next couple of weeks. I'm also poking around in Pennsylvania. I'm trying to put the various pieces together. There are a lot of moving parts to this story. And the key challenge to me is to try to weave all these moving parts together in a sustained narrative that will take readers into what is also a compelling mystery story and a very affecting and heartbreaking story about people and families. Well, you're doing an amazing job of that already. Howard, I just want to ask you if you could get the answer to one question that's nagging you from anyone, law enforcement or Coburg or anyone, what's one question that you just wish you could get an answer to? Well, I have lots of questions, but that's the reporter's job to have questions. But one is involves, I guess, the witness, the eyewitness to that night, Dylan Mortensen. I'd like to know how she really explains what happened that night, her seeing the intruder and then going back to bed and not coming out of her room till about 11 a.m. in the morning or so. I'd like to know what really 
happened there? Was she just filled with fright? Is there a larger story there? I'm curious. Another part of the story that interests me, and I'd love to have more details, in the last piece I wrote for AML, I talk about the cross-country trip with Koberger and his father. I'd love to know what the conversation really was like between them. I mean, here you have a son who's allegedly keeping <laughs> close to his heart the secret that he just was involved in the murder of four people. And here's his father, perhaps getting a realization bit by bit as if he too was following footsteps, that something is just not what it seems. That drama between a father and son, if it existed, would be fascinating to find out. Well, Howard, thank you so much. We can't wait to speak with you again. Safe travels and thank you for a great story. Thank you. I appreciate your talking to me. This is the kind of story that keeps me up at night. Yeah, for many reasons, but I think also it's not a surprise and yet it makes total sense as well that the possible role that social media plays and how it reinforces exclusion from social circles, that it could fuel someone's crime. Pretty powerful. Michael, we need to change the subject, okay? Let's go to someplace a little bit lighter. Yeah, Ashley, I have somewhere we can go and it's kind of social media adjacent thanks to Jensen Davis, our associate editor here at Airmail, and she's got what I think is one of these very fun pieces of social reporting about the rise of the chief of staff. You saw Joe Biden recently turned over his chief of staff. It's seen as this sort of very position for powerful people and politicians. But lately, as she's discovered, it's kind of trickled into the most random quarters of America. Everyone seems to now think they are so important that they need to have a chief of staff. So Jensen Davis, as we mentioned, one of our associate editors is here to talk about why and how this trend is happening. So welcome, Jensen. Thank you for having me. Jensen, in short, what is a chief of staff? Is it a glorified assistant? Is it an underpaid CEO? Explain. It is both of those things, depending on who you ask. So I had started hearing about the role of a chief of staff. I mean, I've always heard about it because the White House has a chief of staff who is a very prominent person who you always hear about in the news and they play a major role for the president. But I had started hearing about it at companies because friends of mine who are a little bit older, who are 28, 29, 30, suddenly a lot of them started becoming chiefs of staff and I did not quite know what that meant, but it sounded familiar, which is kind of nice that that job got a title that was very prominent because it's sort of everyone has that moment of recognition. But then when you really think about it, what does the chief of staff do? Which is why I wrote the article, but a chief of staff can, on some days, they can be scheduling a CEO's meetings. On some days, they might be filling in for the CEO, talking to investors of a company, taking notes, going to meetings on behalf of the CEO. So it really depends. Isn't this also, Jensen, I mean, as I said on the earlier, I love this kind of reporting you've done and do here because it's sort of, it shows like the, I don't know if it's like the arms race of stupidity. And isn't some of just appropriating this title just another kind of way for people to feel extra important when they're really just maybe someone average? I think that that is definitely true for some chiefs of staff. I talked to the chief of staff at Quibi, the former chief of staff at Quibi, and his job seems like quite intense and like they were trying to start a new massive media company and you sort of need someone to have your hands in a lot of different areas with the CEOs are so busy. But then there are some chiefs of staff 
like I mentioned in the piece, Erwan, the supermarket has a chief of staff, which seems a bit excessive. As far as I know, that's the only Los Angeles-based health food store that has a chief of staff, but there could be more. But I think that when you look at how much money a executive assistant makes versus the chief of staff when they're oftentimes doing different roles, while it does seem like a sometimes self-important role, there is a you do make a lot more money as a chief of staff, which whether that's warranted or not is not for me to say, I guess. Jensen, do you think there's an element of the fact that maybe some of these executives are hiring chiefs of staff because it makes them sound more important? Like chief of staff just sounds better than executive assistant, right? Or X, Y, and Z. How much does ego play into all of this? There is some ego involved. I guess if you are adopting a term that was popularized by the president of the United States who needed this to correspond with Congress, I think that there's definitely a level of I too, like the president, need a liaison. There is actually a infamous Silicon Valley CEO advisor who sort of acts as like a business guru to the various men of Silicon Valley or women too, maybe. And he will only take on clients that hired a chief of staff. And it's not really clear why that is his rule, but that is definitely his. That's where he draws the line. No chief of staff, no coaching. Jensen, for the people that you know who have taken this job, is this an attractive position? Like, what's the next step for these chiefs of staff? What do you get promoted into from there? Oh, it's definitely a very attractive position for people I know. I think a lot of the really young, ambitious, nearly 30-year-olds I know, it seems like a great shot to being an executive or to being a C-suite member. And it seems more like glamorous. You get more access than, say, an assistant does. So a lot of people I know have their eyes out on this position. And business-oriented magazines like Forbes and like the Harvard Business Review, about like every four months, they publish a story that's like, why, if you're young and ambitious, you need to become a chief of staff right now. So there's some machinery behind it pushing this narrative of become a chief of staff if you want to become a CEO by the time you're 35. Let's get down to brass tacks. If I am one of these junior Gordon Geckos, American psychos of 2023, and I want to get it, how much am I going to get paid here? What kind of salary am I looking at? The average salary is $185,000, but there is definitely, if you're working at a huge company or you are the chief of staff to a name brand CEO, it's definitely pushing the 250. Michael, we're in the wrong business. Jensen, if you hear of any of these jobs that are open, call us. Well, I mean, if either of you need a chief of staff, I'm open for business. <laughs> we'll get back to you on that. Thank you. <laughs> You're too talented for that, Jensen. Come on. We're going to be reporting to you in about two weeks, so we're all good on that front. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to be a body man. <laughs> I think that's the cooler title. Totally, body man. All right, well, Jensen, thank you so much for this great story, for joining us, and for being a colleague we know and love. Have a great day. Thank you so much. I will see you guys soon, hopefully. Bye, Jensen. Bye. Bye. Michael, I need one of these. I want one of these. I feel like my life would be so much more efficient. All right. I'll be your chief of staff and you can be mine. Good job for us, honestly. <laughs> that feels like a Beyonce song title, but you know who also had a chief of staff or maybe, no, actually he didn't have a chief of staff because it wasn't even invented until the 20th century was the subject of our next guest. And that man would be Abraham Lincoln, not our guest, but the subject he's here to talk about, right? Indeed. The one, the only Abraham Lincoln, whose birthday is on Sunday. When it comes to the 16th president, you can never have too many biographies. And we've got plenty of recommendations here, starting with John Meacham's 
and there was light. We are fortunate that we have Mark Bowden here to talk about all things Lincoln. He's an author we know and love. His latest book is Life Sentence, which is going to be published in April. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. When it comes to Lincoln biographies, is it possible to have too much of a good thing? Not for some of us. And I think I can say with some confidence that that's a lot of us. Having read now 16 just straightforward biographies of Lincoln, I can say that when this new one by John Meacham appeared, it took me about 10 seconds to order it, to read it. So it's an affliction, perhaps, but no, can't be too much. So how does this one stack up? I mean, number 16, he's working on quite a legacy. (laughs) It's a very good biography and very well written, original. I think that Meacham has his own perspective, which actually becomes a reason why I'm interested in reading new biographies, because if they're well done, in particular, a good writer like Meacham, an historian, will bring a whole different perspective. And I find that to be fascinating. But you also, I think you noted in your story, Meacham has a unique year after all this time, 100 and what, 60 years after Lincoln's death, people are still unearthing new pieces of reporting and angles that inform a new book. And Meacham has a piece here that you found of note, yes? Yeah, I mean, overall, I would say that Meacham's kind of unique take is he's interested in the spiritual growth of Abraham Lincoln, who is and was a kind of irreligious political figure in that he didn't identify with any established religion. He was not a churchgoer. And yet, Meacham shows that over the course of his life, he developed this sort of deep sense of the role of the divine in his own life and in the life of the country and the world. And that's reflected in his speeches. I think that another writer might have characterized that theme in a lot of Lincoln's later speeches as his effort to appeal to the religious Americans, which were most Americans at that point. So maybe a deliberate effort to identify. But Meacham, I think, finds this was genuine. There were events in Lincoln's own life, the death of his son, obviously the horrific loss of life, the terrible decisions that he had to make during the Civil War, all gave him, a, I think, certainly a heavy appreciation for powers beyond his own scope even as president. So that there's that. And then in particular, Meacham draws attention to the formal certification of Lincoln's election in, I believe it was in 1861, after this very warmly contested presidential poll and the secession of a dozen or more states. There was a real question as to whether the vice president, who was one of the candidates who Lincoln had defeated, for the presidency, John Breckinridge would preside over the joint session of Congress that would officially name Abraham Lincoln as the next president. And this obviously has significance for us today in light of the events of January 6th, where Mike Pence came under tremendous pressure to not do that, to basically refuse to preside over what is in effect just a ceremonial acknowledgement of the outcome of the election. In Breckenridge's case, even though he was a slaveholder himself, even though he eventually became a Confederate general and secretary of war for the Confederacy, he felt it was his constitutional duty to preside over the joint session of Congress and count the votes that elected Abraham Lincoln as president. So he did. He showed up and he did it. And even though there were policemen lining the halls, there was anticipation of violence, all of which very reminiscent 
of January 6th, you had a man who was honorable and who did what he had taken an oath to do. And all the biographies of Lincoln that I've read, including some multi-volume works, no one had ever written about this particular moment, which gains, I think, particular poignance and importance in light of what's happened in the country over just the last two years. So that just shows you how a new take on the same story can offer you a perspective that you haven't seen before. You make this note that Lincoln is like the Matterhorn. Every writer wants to climb him. But I also think as you touch on this, like for readers, he's also kind of this Rorschach where like we all see what we want to see in him that we want to see in our own selves, like the values or the conflicts or the tests he undergoes. And as you said, the real reason is that you love to read him is for his sheer company, right? Exactly. Spend time with him. I think of all, certainly figures from American history, he's the one who I most admire and like. He was so funny and so decent and so unpretentious. And you read about his interactions with generals with ordinary people who wandered in to the White House, which happened in those days. And what you see is just a truly original human being who was, seems to me, an absolute delight to be around. As I said, thoroughly decent. And also, even though I think he, he was very kind, he was very receptive to other people's feelings. He was very flexible, certainly in his thinking about everything. He was absolutely rock solid in his moral convictions. And once he had made up his mind about a thing, and it sometimes took him quite a bit of time before he did that, he was unswerving in his devotion to whatever principle he had embraced. So all these are, I don't know, other people see, I suppose, other things in him. But in me, for me, those are things that I just deeply admire. I think he was also tested so hard in his years in the White House. I mean, no other president has faced the kind of crisis that Lincoln faced and was pulled in so many directions, was criticized by so many people for really dumb reasons in retrospect. And yet he managed to just sort of stay the course and, and accomplished. He basically saved the country. He not only saved the country, he redefined our purpose, I think, as a nation or reminded us perhaps of what the original purpose of our country was. And so for all those reasons, others can find their own, but those are the things that keep bringing me back to him. Well, thank you so much, not only for a wonderful story, but for your great insights here. And Michael, I think we've got some reading to do this weekend. Well, speaking of reading, I also just want to be remiss if, Mark, you've got your own new book coming out in a few weeks. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a story about a violent gang in West Baltimore. And like so many other American cities, Baltimore is afflicted by these gangs of primarily young black men who are violent and who are basically killing each other. So this particular gang, led by a young man with the unlikely name of Montana Baronet, killed about 20 people over a period of two or three years before he was. He and his gang were finally rounded up and they're all serving life sentences now in federal prison. So the story is really about who these young men are, how they became what they became, why they did what they did. And I hope in a larger sense will shed light on this terrible phenomenon, which is true in every major city in the country, of high levels of violence and murder by young black men in black communities. Well, it's a terrific book. I've already got my galley thanks to you and I'm enjoying it. So it's coming out in April. It is called Life Sentence and pre-order it now. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much, Mark. All the best. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Mark. Have a great day. Bye-bye. 
It's the weekend, and I'd love to know what you have to recommend to us. You mean besides watching 80 for Brady? <laughs> yes. It's perfect for the Super Bowl weekend. I'm just going to get my gals together and go watch 80 for Brady. You know, the new movie with Jane Fonda, Sally Field, Rita Moreno, and Lily Tomlin as four friends who, octogenarians, who go see Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. But no, I won't be doing that. And I will be counting the days until the new Netflix documentary of Prince Andrew's interview comes out. But until then, have you heard of this documentary called All That Breathes? I have not. Tell me more. It's a small documentary. It came out earlier this year and it was the first documentary ever to win Best Documentary at Cannes and at Sundance. And it's tipped now to sort of win at the Oscars this year. And it's a gorgeous, moving picture about two brothers in Delhi who set up this kind of ad hoc wildlife hospital. And they set it up 20 years ago where they treat injured birds, mostly this native black kite that is often being poisoned by pollution. And it's got this air of almost magical realism to it. The guy who directed it is a guy named Shanak Sen. And he just has these images in there that are so haunting and beautiful. And yet it's all True. I don't know. I find it's a story that just knocks you out. It's this kind of miraculous gem that gives you a shot of joy and optimism. And he's going to have these two brothers are struggling against all odds to keep this little self-created animal hospital open. It's called All That Breeze, and it's on HBO Max. And you, my dear? How about you? 80 for Brady? <laughs> no, we're not talking about 80 for Brady. I followed your recommendation and I watched to Leslie on the plane back to New York. And? I thought Riseboro was, was really great, right? Like despite all the controversy around the Oscars campaign, et cetera, et cetera, taking that away, it's she's an incredible actress. This is a really next level role for her. I thought the movie was just okay. It's a small movie made for, I think, less than a million dollars and you can see it. But I think when I recommended it before the Oscar hype and she was getting people campaigning for her, I thought she's pretty amazing in it. There's one scene that ever sticks in my mind where she's at this bar alone and it's this long tracking shot as the camera moves down the bar and she sort of just like collapses in on herself. There's no dialogue, but you can watch her sort of go through this epiphany of like, what is happening in my life? So it's this beautiful, powerful little tearjerker. It's a small movie and I mean that in the best ways. Yeah, I agree. I actually thought the music was great. Oh yeah. Really good country soundtrack. Really good country. And the fashion was a little suspiciously good. She had some really good jeans on in the movie. Anyway, things to be discussed. And the supporting cast. I mean, Mark Maron did well. And Allison Janney was pretty amazing, too. Oh, Allison Janney was so good. Yeah, she was incredible. Yeah, anyway, so much to discuss there. We have obviously the Oscars coming up shortly, so we have all eyes on the prize, so to speak. So more to come on that front very soon. More to come. What are you going to wear? <laughs> to the Oscars party at my house. Pajamas. I know I'm going to log in next time we're taping. Like, I'm Ashley Baker in Los Angeles at the Oscars. I'm like, oh, look, she's there now. See, my, my air tag didn't show that, but I'll find it next I time. <laughs> I'll have my chief of staff let you know about my whereabouts. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Wishing you a fabulous day, marvelous weekend, and we will see you right back here next week. Michael, will you please read us out? Indubitably. Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is 
The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram on Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meetings, so please, in the meantime, subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you like to get your podcasts. But most of all, on behalf of Ashley and me, thank you again for joining us.